Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so this week I am joined once again by Franco Fratton, the founder of EXT Suspension, and we're here to do part two of our deep dive on suspension technology. So if you haven't listened to part one, you should probably go back and listen to episode 140 from a few weeks ago, which kicks this whole series off. There's a link in the show notes if you need it. But today we are picking up where we left off there, which continues with Franco just laying forth a ton of really interesting information about suspension design, particularly on the design and function of dampers in this one. And there's a ton of really good information in here. I think you're going to learn a lot. And Franco is, as always, entertaining and has a lot to say. So this is a good one, and we'll get right to it in a moment. But before we do, I also want to just take a moment to encourage you, if you're a skier or a snowboarder, to come join us for our upcoming Blister Summit in our home of Crested Butte, Colorado, this February. If you're not familiar, you should for sure check out the link in the show notes about the summit. But in short, it is our massive consumer focused test and demo event where you can come check out and demo a whole bunch of really good ski and snowboard gear from the likes of forefront blizzard dps dinafit dinastar elon fisher flalo Folsom, glade head k2 line majesty moment ortovox peak skis rosignal solomon scott Wagner, Wonder Alpine, and a whole bunch more brands with more being added as we speak. And so if that's not enough to entice you, you'll also get to check out Blister headquarters, attend some really interesting panel sessions with folks from the industry and athletes chatting about what it is that they do. You'll get to meet a whole bunch of the Blister team, including myself. I'll be there. Come ski with us. Come ride with us. Come hang out. It's going to be a ton of fun, and I look forward to seeing you there. So, with that, let's get right to my conversation with EXT's Franco Fratton. Well, Franco, it's great to sit down and chat again, and I think we've got a good bit to cover. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> it's been uh, uh, not 100 percentage. I had a little bit of a cold, but through the system, is not going to come to us so we stay with me <laughs> yeah i guess it is the season for those no virus spreading <laughs> right yeah we at least aren't spreading through through video calls just yet so i think we're i think i'm safe there well anyway so our mission here is to sort of continue the conversation that we had last time you were on a few weeks back and just keep going with our deep dive into suspension technology and we touched a lot last time around on the sort of overarching principles of damper design and kind of the trade-offs that are inherent to them in some ways. But I think you wanted to kick things off by talking a bit more about how a damper actually produces damping. So why don't we start there? Where do you want to go? Yeah, this is fine. So, yes, uh, last time we, we covered a little bit of general damping 
technology and design. Okay, we went through monotube, a twin tube, and whatever. And I, I did try to explain that at the end, it doesn't really matter how the damper is built. What does matter is the number that is coming out that is going to make the difference for the vehicle and for the rider. Okay, so uh, I think uh, uh, we can start from that point and and uh, maybe we should have done earlier, but I, I think it could be uh, interesting for most of the people just to refresh how a damper it is really built. Okay, because most of the people see the damper from outside and uh, but they don't really understand how it is really built. And uh, as I said last time, a damper is something incredibly simple. If we want to look as a simple uh, machine, uh, but is it, it is very complex and it is very complicated in the way it's working because is function of many dependency or is proper function. It's very many dependency. So um, just to make it uh, a little bit funny, I think uh, one of the easier things is maybe to take a straight cylinder glass. If we fill it with water or somebody want to fill it with oil, Okay, fill it up till the top. And after you stick a finger inside, you will see that some oil will come out from the glass. Obviously, this to make understand, it is an intrusion of a component that is normally the shaft, the road that everybody see. So uh, when uh, the twin, tube damper was built, when they understood that this was going to happen and the oil was coming out from the first tube, they decided to put another tube around to contain the extra volume due to the intrusion of the shaft uh, volume. The same thing is happening in a monotube where you only have one tube, but as we normally see, we have uh, a reservoir attach to the body okay yeah it's also true the sun damper have what they calling inline reservoir so somewhere in the same cylinder has been uh, uh, made a, a volume a space available to uh, have a reservoir that at the end is just an accumulator that is taking the extra fluid displays but by the piston rod. Um, so in principle, this is what it could be a damper. You know, if we put a lid on, on our glass and we can imagine that our rod, it can come out from one end and after you push your rod, this really it could be your damper okay obviously generally damper attached to the road of a piston just to create uh, 
more force because the force will be dependent by the area of the your road or by the piston. So to uh, to create the damping, in a certain moment you need to have a way to have a drop in pressure to create a pressure loss. Very very easy. You just drill a hole into your pistons that go from one side to another, and you have a, a damper. So, okay, yeah, so that is true. Okay, it is very easy to build a damper. I think, really, it can be easy to build a damper. It is much more difficult is this to understand how the damper work and how to make and manipulate certain damping damper valve and characteristic to achieve uh, some damping quality and performance. So we have established right now that uh, the component, the main component can be very simple. You know, one rod, one cylinder, one piston. Yeah, a, a guide for the rod with a seal, otherwise is going to leak. Okay, a reservoir where this extra volume, it will go. Obviously, if we had a rod through damper or through rod damper, it will be two shafts that go through the cylinder, through the two hand lead. And this type of damper wouldn't require a reservoir because it is no extra displacement of fluid. So it is a displacement fluid from one chamber to another, but not an extra due to the volume of the shaft. Yeah, so I guess just to summarize real quick here, so a couple things going on. So as you said, first, you in most conventional shocks you have, or dampers, you have a shaft that is getting pushed into the main body of the damper and in doing so just the I mean the volume of the shaft itself is displacing some oil that has to go somewhere hence the need for an external reservoir or a second tube or a different packaging of it in an inline shock where you have a different kind of floating piston inside the shock somewhere to handle that the counter example being uh, a through shaft shock such as what Trek has done on a few bikes where you have the shaft going all the way through the damper and coming out the other side, in which case, because the there's sort of the same volume of shaft inside the shock damper body, no matter where it is in its stroke, you don't actually have to have the same compensation for volume as a result of that. Yes, that's perfectly fine. Okay. Now... So we have our simple damper with very few components. And I mentioned a, an orifice, a, a, a hole through the piston is basically an orifice. And we have orifice all around any damper that we have today, because uh, uh, this is a, one of the simple and most useful way to do our click adjustment is to uh, change the uh, orifice size area on on a damper. But the media 
that make the damping, it is a fluid. Okay, so we have oil in any damper. Okay, and uh, as I was uh, talking last time, the oil is one of the biggest enemy. Yeah, it, it is somehow the, one of the few things we can use to produce damping, but it is the main enemy of being able to produce good quality damping characteristic. And, and this is why. Uh, the oil, it is compressible, we said last time, and the fact that it's compressible, it's uh, create a possible lag into the system because dependently on the force that uh, you want to achieve, uh, you can compress the oil at a certain level, but it's showing to be sometime a very, very critical amount into the uh, general uh, damping value. The oil has another characteristic. The oil is expanding. So while it's getting hot, and hot doesn't mean that it's going from 20 degree to 100 degree. It's enough that the oil goes from 20 degree to 40 degree, and its expansion is becoming quite important. So mean we do not only have to care about the intrusion of our shaft of the damper rod, but we need to care that this oil that is expanding, it must have also some room. So the reservoir that we can think it is enough to accommodate the volume of the road in full compression, so for the full stroke, it is not good enough for also the change in volume due to the expansion of the oil. So generally, when we design damper, uh, we do not want to have the road intrusion into the reservoir and the oil expansion due to the temperature become an extra parameter that is going to influence the characteristic of the damper that basically is the reservoir is normally charged with a pressure. Okay. As we know, when we reduce the volume, the pressure go up. Okay. And generally the pressure go up two times with when we reduce the volume by half. So if we reduce the volume by half, our pressure is double. So when you have few PSI, doesn't really make a big difference. But if you have maybe 150, 200 PSI is, is quite common to see. Here we are going to talk that we have very small reservoir and the pressure is going up dramatically. So you do not have any more just a damper. You have a damper with a spring in series on the movement. And this, I think, is a big problem or can create big problem. Has been uh, uh, 
used quite often in the past. I don't know if you still use uh, today is a bottom-out control or whatever, but it made me feel very cold thinking uh, that this is something that you want to use uh, to avoid uh, uh, bottoming. It's, it's not in the philosophy on building good damper that you want to use this type of uh, possibility, let's say. The other thing, and here we are talking always about oil. Viscosity change with the temperature change. So often we, we are talking, oh, it's very, very good oil. Okay, very, very good oil doesn't mean anything. Okay, is everything, I think, in engineering, uh, you need to talk about number. So it is a very good uh, factor that establishes certain oil quality that is called in viscosity index. That has nothing to do with the 2.5 or 2 or 4 or 5 uh, viscosities, S-A-E viscosity. Viscosity index establish a difference between the oil characteristic in viscosity at 40 degree and at 100 degree. So, Generally, in damping, in damper, you want to use very high viscosity index. Generally, they are around 400. This is what the general rule, because when you have very high viscosity index, the ratio of the change in viscosity between 40 degree and 100 degree is much more consistent or low compared another type of oil. So, because viscosity is uh, one of the characteristics that establish damping through orifice, especially when we are talking about laminar uh, flow, it is very important to have a oil that you have a very high viscosity index. That means the viscosity stay more consistent through a large spectrum of temperature. Now, another thing that they have to do with oil again, oil have some air that is inside. Every little molecule of oil have some air inside. And also, when we fill the damper with oil, while we filling, we are going to move out the air that is all around us, and uh, we try to fill the damper completely with oil. But the damper has many, many different cavities that are very difficult sometimes to reach. So it is very important to make sure that your damper is properly filled with oil and it is no air inside. Because when you have air inside, to start off is very difficult to detect it, because uh, generally the air mix uh, with the oil. So it is very difficult to feel it as when you do your filling process. But all this air 
it will become very evident once you start moving the damper and you will find that the air is much more than what you thought if you haven't been able to vacuum filling your damper. So vacuum, it is another very important process that need to be done properly. And also in this is very important to use correct machine, okay, calling normally vacuum machine, but you can get so many. We started on buy some machine. Obviously here we have to bleed a big, big damper because when we do damper for rally on off-road, they get, you know, one liter of oil. And when we do a, 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 an MTB damper, they get 100 cc of oil. So, but the problem is the same. It's air inside and the air create a, a big incapacity of the damper to be efficient, to respond properly. So also it's very important to get proper vacuum machine and at the end, we have been manufacturing our own run and we carry on on experimenting how to get better because we see important variation in quality in the damping characteristic when we have a, a good bleeding bleed system. So I think we have at least five parameters that can change into the damper that are all coming from one component that is the oil. And the biggest problem that the oil is creating when you are manufacturing your damper, it is that the oil, because you have all this kind of compressible capacity, is becoming very hysteretic. Okay, now what does mean hysteresis and hysteretic? It is, uh, I, I know some people try to disregard it or not to feel uh, that is important. Um, personally, and I think is the philosophy that we have here, is that we want to build the most perfect hydraulic system. You know, when you make something that is perfect, that it will never happen, but as close as much to perfection, after you can always modify to your aim, to your need. But if the default are inherent of your design, you know, they're there. It's nothing you can do. You, you know, you, you have to accept it. Oh, yeah, I have hysteresis. Oh, okay, I cope with. Okay. So, um, what I think a lot of people disregard that damper, as we spoke last time, they are definitely dependent from velocity. So if you move it very quickly, you get more damping. If you go slowly, you have less damping. But maybe because not many have very good facility to do the testing, but damper are incredible dependent from frequency. When you look your damper, 
And I can tell you a brief story. When first I started my company, I think I told uh, last time after my experience with uh, Fox, okay, I moved to England and I built my own company after working for Lotus. And uh, I had one of the smartest guy working with me. His name is Rob Williamson, an incredible, clever person. Rob was, uh, well, not was, it is, <laughs> thank God he's still alive. Uh, a, a very good mathematician, he's a good physic. And um, he came to work with me at Dynamic Suspension. That was the name of the company that I found there. And uh, I told Rob, Rob, we need to make a, dump, a, a dyno test machine because we bought one that was on the market. Said, but you know, we, we need to have more capacity. We need to do to understand better what is going on. I think this machine that we bought, yeah, it's good, but what can you? So after six months, we had our new dyno test machine. So, and he built an hydraulic actuation dyno test machine so we could run more type of uh, testing. So not just force displacement, but also position and uh, velocity, frequency, different type of square wave or triangular acceleration, so many different things. So first time we put a damper on the machine, and I look at the very simple, most common graph, what is called a potato graph, you know, the round graph, force displacement graph, that is basically a, a, a kind of an oval shape, that we move it from our previous purchase machine and we put it on our one. And I look at Rob and said, Rob, this looks terrible. How is possible that on our machine, the graph and the characteristics look so bad? He said, but Franco, that's the story. He said, we are sampling a much higher frequency and uh, we are not filtering result. So what you see is really how bad is the damper when it's working. He said, on the other machine, you don't see this because the sampling is lower and you know the filtering. I said, but that's very, very bad. So what we have to do? I said, ah, look, I think we have stiction. I think we have friction. I think we have this. And I have to say, at that time, we were already building damper. It was very successful in different formula. But we could see so many default, OK? And the default, we could see for the first time because we had a machine capable to show us the real situation. But situation got even worse. Because one day we decide to test the damper in frequency domain. And what it looked to be a kind of a consistent damping characteristic at the same velocity, and velocity was the same. So testing in, in velocity for achieving 500 millimeter per second, we had quite a nice damping graph by symmetric, as smooth as we wanted, when we went to test it at different frequency for the same similar final velocity. Oh my God, that was terrible. Really, you could see how 
the frequency was changing completely the characteristic of your tamping. And this is due to the hysteresis. So personally think you want to have a good control over the hysteresis to try to build a damper with the lower hysteresis possible. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean that is going to work uh, better than the NASA. It does mean that your system is properly balanced. So you have pressure balance correctly. You have done some good job. The shape is nice. Uh, and after you are free to make certain decision because sometime you will like to have a damper with low hysteresis and low velocity because it's where you expect some very good response. And maybe you want an higher hysteresis graph because, uh, you know, uh, at higher frequency on higher velocity, sometimes you like to have a very low damping characteristic. And hysteresis maybe is helping you. But the important thing is to be able to measure it to know what is going to happen. So I disagree when people said, oh, hysteresis doesn't really matter. Um, hysteresis is one of the biggest problems that uh, mathematicians that are trying to simulate dumping characteristic for industry. You know, today you don't do too much real development. You do a lot of simulation on everything. You know, you do FEM for material analysis and you do you try to do simulation to establish dumping characteristic. It's very important. Some is easier to establish some critical dumping characteristic or dumping coefficient, whatever. Some are very difficult and you can go through any type of thesis on uh, uh, study and it will end up saying, oh, you know, because of hysteresis problems that is very difficult to calculate, it's very difficult to simulate, really the result that they cannot be 100% sure and is only due to this terrible thing that is happening in the damper, the oil compress, and we have hysteresis, okay? So the main, the main problem, it is in, in this area. So, um, as I said, everybody is free to make his own choice in, in the way he wants to work, but I think uh, this uh, effect, it cannot be disregarded when uh, you try to build a damper. Okay, yeah, so there's a, <laughs> a lot in there, and I think it'd be worth just pausing for a moment to explain what you mean by hysteresis a little bit, and as sort of I think about it and understand it, you're basically talking about people generally tend to think about and describe dampers as being speed-sensitive, as we've been saying, but hysteresis is sort of the phenomenon where in addition to that speed sensitivity there is an impact basically based on the frequency at which the damper is moving and sort of tied in with that basically what it sort of has been doing in the moment before you are at a given velocity and so it's this combined effect whereby there is an additional sort of set of parameters in addition to just velocity that controls the damping parameters. And as you've just been saying, depending on the design, you can have extremely different results at a given velocity 
based on frequency of movement. And then you talked, I think, pretty nicely about a number of the various kind of factors that go into the amount of hysteresis that a damper displays. And I do want to pause for a moment on the bit about reservoir pressure and using that for bottom out. I think the old Fox RC4 dampers were kind of the most prominent one in the mountain bike world to use a combination of variable pressure in the reservoir and a knob that actually adjusted the reservoir volume in an attempt to adjust the bottom out resistance. But as you said, that also has a pretty big impact on the damping elsewhere because you've got this spring that is changing its, well, air volume and therefore air pressure pretty dramatically as the damper moves through its travel, oil is displaced into the reservoir, etc. And so I think, yeah, just a, a note to illustrate kind of an example of what you were talking about there was those old RC4 shocks that Fox hasn't made in a while. But I think one of the things that I wanted to ask about next is how you sort of think about what the right damping targets are for a damper design. You know, we've talked quite a bit about how, well, the ultimately the layout, be it a monotube or a twin tube or whatever else, doesn't matter in and of itself. The important thing is what the damping that is produced looks like in terms of shapes of the curve and all of the rest, which 100% makes sense. But when you are coming up with a new design for a given application, how do you think about what the quote-unquote right thing to target is? First thing that you need to do before you start designing a damper is to understand where it's going to be fitted, okay? Obviously, here we are talking about mountain bike, but mountain bike is still a vehicle, yeah, two wheel. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty particular one. Oh, not pretty, quite particular one because uh, weight of sprung mass and unsprung mass are different to motorcycle, even if we two wheel. But it's the ratio between them is quite different. Uh, it's also very very true that the body of the rider can make a big impact on the general handling of this vehicle, but it's still some two masses, okay, that are affected by gravity, okay? Two masses that are connected by one unit that is a damper in the rear and one in the front that is a fork. Considering one of the two, just to make it easy, because at the end, the, um, the, the main difference is only the motion ratio between the rear and the front. Okay. One is a one to one and the other one is one to three. But, you know, they operate somehow in the same way. Uh, they have a springs or, okay, maybe the, the front four can have, uh, you know, 
two or three different springs, but they still all together, they make one spring value, okay? And uh, just to calculate, in the rear damper, generally you have uh, one spring with one characteristic. If it's a coy spring, generally it is a linear spring. Even said so, it, it could, have, could be a progressive spring because we can build the coy springs that are progressive, or you have uh, a near spring, but this spring have at the end a natural frequency, okay? And uh, it's sitting between the unsprung mass that are very light and the sprung mass that are the heavier part of the vehicle, okay? So once you have established the vehicle, the masses, that is quite simple, you know, to measure it. If you can get also some data regarding velocity and displacement, and this normally you do on data position, okay? And we are having a very interesting experience in that moment because uh, we obviously, we have our own bike where we do many tests and we have our acquisition system and we have been measuring quite a lot for the front and in the rear uh, establishing certain number and sometime in the past confronting with some entity we we are having quite strong differences okay uh, and uh, oh no 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 we haven't been see this number and we'll say yeah we we saw this number uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, so a disagreement in the basic. So if you're already on, on this, it is some misunderstanding or wrong data, this will move you to make wrong decision, okay? But in the last few months, we have confronted with some bike uh, uh, producer, and we start seeing some number are very, very similar. So at least we get more confidence that what we are doing is uh, going in, in the correct direction. It's very important to know uh, what travel you, 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 use, you use and what the speed uh, is a histogram, you know, in general over a, a type of a um, particular stage or section, whatever you want. You, it, your suspension is working. When you have this, the, the most important thing is to start understanding what could be your critical damping characteristic, okay? Uh, critical damping is something very simple, okay? So it's maybe a big word, but when you want to think, okay, critical damping, it is a lower damping force, okay, let's say, that allowed to um, reduce as quicker as possible the movement of the spring, of the elastic part that is in the system. So uh, without the overshooting, without uh, uh, letting move uh, for too long, otherwise you bouncing around. So it is a, let's say it is a number, you know? It is generally, the, it describes um, 
the best dumping for the lower time to take a um, um, vibration vibrating system to reach uh, the um, the steady state in the lower time possible. Okay. This doesn't mean that you build the damper with this characteristic, but you have an understanding of what it is uh, the value that you should have to achieve this situation, to change from, you know, and also it is very important because it's helping you to control eventual, eventually resonance that can happen into your system because at the moment you input uh, some forces that have the same type of amplitude that you have in your natural frequency, this is expanding and is getting out of control. So you need to have the correct amount of damping. So once you have established this, you have some figure in front of you. And in mountain bike, especially, much more easy for car, passenger or racing, much more easy because the passenger, okay, it's a very static uh, mass doesn't make any effect. Yeah, it's making heavier or lighter, so it can change the natural frequency of your system, but it's not going to change as a dynamic uh, mass that can move, you know, in front, in the rear, sideways, whatever. So in mountain bike, it is very, very different. It is also very different in motorcycle, uh, you know, you, you can see when, you know, motocross, People, uh, not people, rider move uh, very different if they are on a sand track or in a hard pack track. You can see big difference in, in riding style. And you have the same thing in, in a straight circuit motorcycle. And you have the same when you have a, a mountain bike rider. Okay. So, but once you have established this number, you can start choosing some damping ratio and some damping coefficients that you want to use. All these damping ratio and damping coefficients at the end of the day in a damper are measured in damper, damping force. Okay, so you establish certain characteristics, but it's quite common today that we divide damping at least into stage, everybody, okay? In the past, damper been built only to control the spring, so they only had rebound dumping, okay? After we understood that we could have also some compression dumping from the same action, just opposite direction. So we discovered, oh, we have also capacity to have some compression dumping. And after, through studying, we started understood, oh, we have two different masses that move a completely different frequency, okay, with also different stroke uh, and velocity. So maybe we need a particular type of damping for the low speed section of the damper characteristic of the movement of the suspension. And this can be easier in bump and in rebound. And we also maybe, for sure, need to have a different 
dumping characteristic and, and so dumping ratio in the ice pit section. So uh, we went from one dumping characteristic that was rebound to two dumping type of capacity, rebound and bump, to four different dumping characteristic, low speed, high speed, bump, and rebound. So we are at least at four. You know, eh? uh, let's just forget at the moment blow off dumping and all this because uh, they're just going to create some more stress in, on the understanding. So you also generally, uh, you can establish that generally you want to have a, a higher rebound dumping characteristic or ratio compared bump. Okay. When we think uh, generally bump characteristics are affected more by the uh, unsprung mass movement and rebound, you try to control it more with the rebound uh, dumping. It's in generally because the mass and everything is, is quite higher and the mass that is moving, it's uh, quite important. You generally, you can see it is a two to one ratio between bump and rebound. Sometimes you can have it less, okay? It's, it's not 100% religion, this. It is uh, just some number that we can see in, uh, in what we can use. For sure, it is one thing. Bump velocity spectrum, it is much higher than rebound. Okay? So, in bump, is a front, the rear, you can reach very high velocity. So, obviously, it's depending from wheel to damper. Okay, but it's just a question of motion ratio. But we are talking about maybe up to two meters per second of the rear, okay, in the damper. And, uh, but in rebound, it is much less. And why is much less? Because in rebound, the only thing that can help, it is a spring, how much has been compressed, and the weight of your unsprung mass. So it's not much that can help to extend the damper. So velocity, at the end is quite lower compared uh, compression. Same thing for the front, okay? In the front, you go up to five meters per second in the, in the front fork in compression, and you maybe you go to uh, two meters per second in, in rebound. So it's still a uh, big difference in, uh, in the two velocity from compression rebound. So, we have the different type of dumping ratio. We have the different velocity. And obviously, this we know because of the data acquisitions that have been acquired data. So at this point, I don't want to say it is easy, but you have quite a lot of data to establish what you want to do. Just uh, another important thing. Uh, we built quite a lot of damper for different applications. And we see no big difference between 
damping characteristic for the mountain bike compare damping characteristic for an off-road vehicle that have a completely different masses, okay, that, dif- that have quite similar velocity, okay. Yeah, they generally have more stroke, this big vehicle, but what the damper can do in terms of forces, sometimes are not so different, quite similar. So why do we make big damper for off-road and we don't do it for mountain bike? But the biggest difference it is that obviously the mechanical stress and the heating, what you want to, to make as a reliability is what is becoming the biggest difference, okay? It's not really the term of damping, because the damping, you can make it very similar with a very small damper, but for sure, it will not survive when I have to do a Paris-Dakar or a Bahia in the middle of the desert. But the damping characteristic, and I was quite surprised first time I got close to MTB, I didn't know, okay? And when we started, oh, that's very interesting. This little toy uh, make quite a big job, okay? So when we talk about this, maybe we can talk a little moment about heating, okay? Because we, we should ge- talk a little moment also on how we produce the damping, really, you know, before we spoke about a little orifice can be already, no, not can be, it is already a damper, okay? A damper with a lot of the limitation, but it is a damper. But this orifice, through the pressures lost through the orifice, at the end, it will make some energy, and this, it will become heat, okay? So when you have a damper that work properly, that is capable to control all the variety of movement and forces and stroke, he must generate heat. Often people said, oh, it's getting hot, it's not good. No, 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 no. It's getting hot, it is very good, okay? Obviously, you know, if you have a massive amount of friction, it can get hot also because of the friction, but, okay. I give for granted that we are capable to build damper with very little friction. And if it's getting hot, it's not because of the massive friction, it's getting hot because of this capacity to control all the different frequencies, the different stroke and the different forces that go through. Um, one way to understand uh, how you create this drop of pressure, I think, yeah, it's pretty simplistic, but if you get a garden hose, you know, this rubber hose, that, okay, so it's attached to your, uh, um, now I don't get the name, on your tub, okay, and you start watering your garden. Very often, you tend to squish the hand of your rubber hose, okay? And when you squish it, 
one thing happened quite evident that you can see, ooh, your jet go further away. You know, it's get capacity to reach longer, you know, distance. Why? You haven't touched your tab, you haven't done anything. You just change your orifice, basically. You made it restricted. When you do this, it is one very evident thing that happened. You see the water jets go, you know, longer. But in the same time, your the pressure of the water behind your finger, not in front where the water come out, but behind, is getting higher. Okay, so this basically the principle of how a damper valve is working. You know, you create a restriction, you change the pressure. Okay, it is a pressure loss. Velocity increase, and this how you achieve a kind of a damping. Okay, because the pressure loss is getting transformed in in damping characteristic. So every time you get, you know, your flow go through the different valves, you basically, you achieve this type of situation. And it obviously dependent on the, how much you'll be squishing. So how much your shim stack or your springs that are inside your valve is acting, you will achieve more or less dumping. I don't know if it makes sense, but this is, uh, uh, I think it's a very simple way to, to understand what we are doing when, you know, we, we, we get in uh, a damper works. No, I think it's a good example. And a, a nice way to think about it is just that you are doing a variety of techniques with an orifice being the sort of simplest one and we get into more complex valving and shim stacks and the rest but at its core you're just controlling the flow of a fluid generally oil through the damper and so by placing a restriction on the how quickly the oil can flow you generate force behind the piston and voila you have damping yes yes what type of what amount of damping you want to put into your system, okay, it is not so easy to establish. Because one thing is talking, you know, a little bit uh, in um, some technical term, like, you know, I have the natural frequency, I have, uh, you know, I create a critical damping or I use this type of damping ratio. At the end, you need to make sure that the system is producing the correct amount of damping to have a safe vehicle, so that is responding and is controllable. But the other thing that is the most important, you want to have a damping system that gives you performance, help you to go faster. Okay, so at least this is what has been my full life in in damper it was to try to to help the vehicle to go faster so this it's a little not it's a little bit it's more complicated okay for sure um and uh, 
I would say one thing, one rule for sure. It is the minimum dumping that you can have in the system that help you to have the best control of your masses. So it's keeping safe, okay? And the less dumping that is helping your unsprung masses to stay in contact with the ground, that is the magic thing that you want to achieve. Okay, so the less dumping you can have into the system, okay, you will have the best performance vehicle because you will gain grip because your wheel that will stay always in contact with the ground, okay, you will control weight transferred because at the end, you know, again, this is not a secret, but it's something that I strongly believe, and uh, I think few other things in, in, into this understand it quite well. A damper, we talk, you know, we've been talking, yes, uh, twin tube, monotube, and I said, doesn't really matter. The, what doesn't matter is the final number, okay? If we can achieve the good number with a very simple orifice in the piston, why not? Okay, it's very simple. It's working. It's giving me what I want, so I don't need to to make it very complicated. My father always told me, "Don't make more complicated what is a minimum need." Okay, so just stay, you know, with your feet on the ground and try to make it simple. Okay, so yeah, a damper is a a tool that is there to control spring, okay? Is there to allow the suspension to move in certain way. The damper at the end, it is a brake system into your system because it's changing time, how certain movement happen. So, I always like to think the damper at the end, it's a time machine because it's changing the timing on how certain motion are happening while people are riding or they are driving, okay? So it doesn't change load because it's not a spring, okay? But it changes the ratio on how you transfer weight from one part to another. So if you have uh, very little damping, it will happen quicker. If you have more damping, it will happen slower. Okay. I think we were talking last time about some people pushing the bike by hand and, and try to understand if a, they have a good quality damper because you're doing a lot of adjustment. I personally think it's just rubbish. You're just wasting your time to do this thing. But, you know, anyone can do as you like. But try to go around with your rebound click all close, okay? And tell me how good you're going to be while you're doing your riding. I think you will come back and say, it was terrible, harsh, uh, uh, fell every single bump in my back, uh, really bad. So you will never use 
a completely lock uh, loosely damper. It's crazy. You do, you don't need you do you do not want to have it. You want to have a adjustment that work correctly for this type of application. And in the same time, you don't want to have full open damper click, especially in rebound, because if this is a range of adjustment is so big, it's normally it is when you have this effect that you close all the rebound that doesn't move anymore. This means that you will get out of control in your vehicle because you are not going to dump anything through the orifice because the orifice you have a, a parabolic shape and you know you will lose a lot of damping characteristic because the oil will pass very easily through your orifice so again it is certain things that really matter in the way we setting up our damping okay so the damping need to be the minimum possible, okay? And very often you see that when you have fast rider, they maybe want low damping in rebound or lower damping in rebound because they are capable with their body to do certain type of control, but they want to have, because they go fast, they need the, the rear wheel or the front wheel to go down very quickly, okay? But maybe they want more compression because they are eating things much harder. So they need to have a little bit more damping capacity to absorb the input or the landing from jump. So this is relating more to some experience, some testing where you, you go and you fine tuning. I, I can tell you one thing, it happened only two years ago to us. Somebody came and said, uh, we really like your damper, we have been tested, but they have one problem. Okay, it's good, they only have one problem, it's already good. He said, rebound adjustment is not, the range is not big enough. I said, you know what? Yeah, many people said so, doing this testing, but you don't go on bicycle and stay next to the bike and push it down. You go on bicycles, being on the bicycle and go around. So let's talk in about dynamic and, and so we can eventually talk. Said, yes, we think, you know, you, you should do more. I said, but can we, can we do a test? Can we understand? why you are mentioning this, because it will be good if we have the same damper with possibly two or three different riders, different weight, different capacity, different height, so different spring, possibly, same damper, and we see if we need to have less range or more range to control this spring with these people. After three-day testing, they came back and said, you know, the damping uh, range is good enough. We we all, between the 350 and the 450 spring, yes, with three, four click of adjustment, we cover all, really, we, we didn't fault, but 
we compare your damper with other damper on the dyno, and we saw this type of characteristic. So this is just to explain that the right damping, it is one, is not 150, okay? For this bike or for this rider, when you have the correct number and the correct shape, after you can accommodate quite few people because you still have, but because this type of characteristic has been established to be the, the good one. So uh, I think this is also a, another important consideration that need to be taken in from people when they try to judge or they want to build a damper or they want to understand more about the damper. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's that you don't need a massive range of adjustment. You just need enough to get you to the right place. And particularly on rebound, as you've touched on earlier, where you only have the spring control driving a whatever the unsprung mass of the bike is, which is, you know, consistent at a given setup, you probably don't need that wider range of adjustment to cover all of the different needs there. And so, yeah, that uh, totally checks out. So I think, I don't know if it is, but it is plenty that can be discussed about damper, okay? Um, I get up every morning and I think that maybe I need to do something different or I misunderstood something, okay? Uh, I have a good, very good friend. I don't see him very often, to be honest. I haven't seen him for the last, I think, 10 years now. It's uh, somebody that I consider to be one of the best damper engineer ever. His name is Jeff Ryan, and he was working with me at the time at Fox when we were, you know, 25, 26 years old. Okay. And uh, last time I met him, it was in a, in a show exhibition. And uh, he said, are you still living your life inside the damper, going up and down inside the oil? And I told, yes, Jeff, look my hand. You know, my skin is so nice and lubricate. <laughs> and, you know, so... Uh, I understand what he, he was saying to me. We have been living for a long time, thinking to be inside the damper and going through the valve and things, especially a few years ago when we didn't have some technology available to do the measurement, to simulate or to test. It was a lot of this, uh, you know, empiric. Now, as we said, we we gone, you know, quite far with all the technology and measurement capacity. So we don't need to stay in the oil anymore. But it was funny that he was mentioning this and I could said, yes, this is really true. Okay. We have been spending. <laughs> so um you know maybe we could talk a little moment about the different type of valving design and and technology. Okay, um, I still think that the best valve design is still one of the oldest one, that is the shims stuck 
system. Uh, it is a little bit complicated, and especially, yes, some withdraw because, uh, you know, tolerances are very important. I mentioned a few months ago when I was talking to Steve Jones, and I don't know if you know him, Steve uh, has been one of the first to test uh, our damper a few years ago. And uh, he, he was asking, you know, what is the main important number when you design a damper or you build a damper? And I said, yeah, the main important thing is the tolerances. Okay. So anything that is more than 0.05 of a millimeter, so 500 of a millimeter, it, it will not work. So you need to have certain things that you keep it under control. But the, as I was saying, the Sheen stack offer a big variety of capacity because you want to build somehow some linear damper shape, but to build linear damper shape because the damper is depending on velocity and is changing, you want to build maybe non-linear non valve characteristic. And with the shims, you can really play anything you want. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to get it a simulation that said, oh, if you put this three like this and these two like this, you will achieve this. Yeah, yeah, in, in theory, but yeah, not in, in, in fine tuning, that is what we're trying to do. But the shims, it's a very good quality that um, is very light. So you have very little inertia. So it doesn't really create big lag on how they work in the response through the shim is very good. Okay. They are lacking of consistency on uh, replicate one damper similar to another. This is a little bit of a difficult thing to make it happen, you know, but I, personally think is one of the best uh, way today to manufacture, to, to get dumping quality, different shape. Okay. In uh, with very little uh, cost, you know, shim doesn't really cost much. Okay. It is other type of valve, you know, a lot of the twin tube today is a used kind of poppet valve system. Okay. I honestly, I don't like it much. We use it, okay? Uh, I don't think we will ever use it in mountain bike, okay? But maybe one day we will we will do something. Poppet valve is basically a spring-loaded, um, um, like a spring-loaded needle. This needle can have different type of shape. Okay, but you know, to change the characteristic of your uh, uh, pressure, you change your spring in the preload. Okay, on the spring, what is happening? It is an open and closed situation. Very difficult to make a damping characteristic, a shape characteristic, where you want to maybe achieve a certain type of knee. The transition between low speed and high speed, you want to do certain type of shape. With poppet valve, yeah, they are more easy to give uh, repetitive and consistent uh, uh, value in production. 
but personally, it's a quality of product for, for performance. I don't think it is. It is another type of valve that has been my last experiment before going away from dynamic suspension that I sold it in 2001 to a Canadian company. It was what was calling what it is calling spool valve. Okay, so spool valve are the main heart of you know proportional valve style with pilot drive driven that are generally um, active system, not active suspension. Just forget active suspension at the moment. Maybe we can talk later. But active system that they control movement in many different types of application in the industry. There's plenty of airplane and whatever. Okay, But the main heart, it is this moving cylinder that is opening some different type of orifice. At the time, we decided that we want to achieve uh, a product that was giving more repetitivity into the gumping characteristic. You know, when you work with car, you have a big problem. You have two front wheel, a two rear wheel. And the two front wheel, you want that the damper are exactly the same. Okay, so, and the rear, it is the same because we are talking obviously about motorsport, so everything needs to be as better as possible. And uh, is uh, the quality of the damping is one thing, but the consistency of the damping characteristic, it is also very important. And with shims, it's not easy to achieve maybe two very similar damper within a 5% one to the other and also to have it adjustable. You know, in motorcycle, you have only have one damper. Yeah, the characteristic of the damping will be very similar. Maybe you close one click more and one click less, and you are achieving the same type of graph. In a racing car, doesn't work like this. So it was very important. So we, we decided to build a spool valve. So the spool valve, what it was very good, you can generate the shape of the spool that is basically becoming like a two-stroke engine cylinder. You know, if you have a two-stroke engine, probably everybody has been playing when he was little, young, with two-stroke engine. You have a transfer port all around, and you could change the size of the port, the height of the port, and the piston is going up and down, and you open the emission of the exhaust system. So basically, the spool valve on the dynamic suspension damper was pretty similar design. And what is very good, you can simulate the shape. So instead to do the job to find the way to achieve a graph with this technology, it is the other way around. You draw a graph, you put it into your computer, and at the end it's giving you the shape that you want to as a port to achieve this graph. So you are not spending hours on changing shims and going to dyno and trying this and that. It is pretty neat. The results are incredibly consistent. Unfortunately, you need certain dimensions, certain size, and the cost of the process 
in manufacturing the valve that is an hydrostatic system, so no seal, okay, because you need to work. It's pretty high, so maybe you do not really want to think that you want to put in on a bike because probably the valve costs more than your bike. <laughs> okay, this is the other possibility on valve design. So, orifice, shim stack, I would say, are still the most uh, performant, okay? Orifice with different shape, possibly orifice with turbulent flow, so they are less dependent from viscosity change, because viscosity affects damping characteristic, especially when it's in a laminar flow. If you can achieve orifice, as we have, that are turbulent, for sure your damper becoming less dependent from temperature. Shim stack are very high turbulent, so it's no problem. It's working very good, but they give you a variety of capacity. And if you have different type of piston design, you can have the linear, the digressive, you know, the regressive, whatever, still with very uh, contained cost, okay? And after you have the poppet, that are very simple, poppet valve was the first type of valve that it was made into twin tube damper 70 years ago. So, you know, this is how they started, okay? And eventually you have this spool valve that is very, not high performance, okay, but is giving you a very high consistency when you want to achieve very, very high quality and repetitive damper that in certain area in motorsport are important. Mm. All these valves, they can share the same application. So it's not that you want to have, no, that you have to have shim stuck in the main piston, and maybe you want to have a poppet in the compression, it's up to you. You can have shim stuck here and shim stuck there, or poppet here and poppet there. It's all depend on what you want to achieve, okay? So I think generally we cover most of the damping uh, way uh, with these three different, three basic damping system. Well, Franco, I think that might be a good place to leave it for now. We've covered an awful lot on damping between parts one and part two here. So thank you again, as always, for coming on. This has been super informative. I think folks will have learned a lot. And let us know in the comments if you've got any questions or anything else that you might want to hear about. And we'll talk again sometime. Okay. This has been super fun. Thank you again. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Thank you to everyone. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, I want to say thank you to Franco Fratton for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.